Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. This episode will be a bit of a departure from my usual format. It's more conversational and certainly deviates from my standard questions. As a listener, you may know that I reached a point a few years ago when it was time for me to leave alcohol. I'm curious about our obsession with alcohol. Where does it start? How does it impact us, sober or not, as we go through our lives? I asked a couple of friends to join me, and I don't tell you much about them because I thought it might just be better to let you listen into our conversation like you would in a bar. What happens when a Canadian, an American, and a Brit walk into a bar and talk over drinks? Because when it comes to alcohol, it seems you're either into it or over it. Before we begin, I gratefully acknowledge that I record this podcast on the First Nations territories of the Erie, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, Mississaugas, and the Chonadon of the so-called Neutral Tribes. Hamilton is also adjacent to the Haldeman Treaty Territory. Thank you for being here. This is Episode 54. Welcome to Over Drinks. This is something I've been talking about for some time. I wanted to have a bit of a conversation, partly prompted by my own story of kicking alcohol a few years ago. And uh, so I wanted to have a conversation less about the recovery story or sobriety and more about kind of, I'm curious about what it is about alcohol that societally we are obsessed by. So I've asked a a couple of friends of mine and uh, Ryan is an American from the Midwest uh, of the United States. And Vijay is a Brit who's coming to us via Austria. (laughs) So he has uh, kind of two perspectives, I suppose. And I'm a Canadian living just outside of Toronto. Wanted to have kind of a lighter conversation around alcohol, sobriety, choices, where our predilection toward embracing alcohol or not comes from. So one of my first questions that I wanted to ask both of them is, what's your first memory of alcohol? Ryan, do you want to jump in on that one? Sure, I can start with that one. I grew up in a household where alcohol like was not a thing. I think I was probably in my 20s before I ever saw my dad have a sip of alcohol and he was like off his rocker with the smallest amount of sangria. It was, it was really amusing, but, but he, uh, that was never a thing. But my first like real encounter with alcohol was actually when I was seven and visiting my grandfather, my mother's mother, who had been an alcoholic starting when he was 40 and he he was in his final days. He had basically drunk himself to a point where his organs were failing. And I saw him about three days before he died and didn't fully understand what was going on. But it opened up a lot of conversations in our family about the impact that alcohol had on him and why it was not a part of our lives. But even that never really sunk in because I've had my own journey with alcohol on and off into my adulthood. And mm-hmm. uh, obviously that continues. Well, that's a heavy event to have happen as a young person to to see that. I'm sorry to 
sorry that happened. I, yeah, I don't mean to lay it on heavy. He was a large man, like in terms of his legacy with our family. Mm-hmm. And I feel tremendously uh, grateful for that, that he did have such an impact. And as I approached 40 this year, it was like, this is the year that he started drinking. And this is the year that I'm going to stop. And so he continues to provide guidance, even though even though he's not, you know, present. As sad as it is, I think there's, you know, something to be, you know, learned. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Vijay, what's your first memory of alcohol? Yeah, I I remember, if you think back to, um, you know, we were a family of immigrants. This was the early 80s. My parents emigrated from Kenya back in the the early 70s to the UK. So we were a kind of family of kind of working class, a new world type. I didn't feel distressed as perhaps my parents did in terms of coming to a new country. And alcohol was always a thing. Like I I didn't realize what it was, but I, I do remember... I remember my dad drinking uh, a beer. I still remember the gold can. It was a gold can with a white strip in the middle called Long Life, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I remember thinking, what what the hell is this stuff? And similarly, I, I must have also been, what Ryan said, seven, I don't know, eight years old. I remember also it was my first vivid realization that this is a drink which the kids don't drink, you know. And I remember I was behind the sofa. My dad was came back from it. He always had a beer at the end of the day when he got back after his 14-hour shift or whatever it was. So he had a beer. He had his favorite seat. And he used to put hand on the side of the sofa on the floor. And I had a little hiding place behind the sofa. I had my little cubby hole. And then I remember crawl, crawling around and I, I picked the thing up and I smelt it. And I thought, this is disgusting, you know. And then I took a sip. <laughs> Then I took a sip and I was like, oh, my God. This and I thought, I'm never going to drink this stuff, you know. And that was yeah. my first memory, I think. That was like, yeah, mid to late 80s, I'd say. <clears throat> right. My most vivid memory, I don't know if it's my first memory, is my grandfather turned 65 or something, some sort of milestone birthday, and he got a bottle of cognac. And we were doing sort of a family gathering and he cracked this open. He was pretty happy with it. It was like Crevassier or something. And uh, he gave me a sip of it and I, you know, tasted it. It was like, I was like, wow, ha ha ha. It's the big laugh about how it was tasted like gasoline. What I imagine gasoline tastes like, which is this horrific taste. And the other sort of key memory that I have is, in high school, like I never drank really. It was like I was grade 12 by the time I finally like got drunk. But one of my best friends, I realized later, I don't think I really understood, but her parents would come home and just tuck in and get really drunk. And it became a really abusive. So it was sort of like, one drink, two drink, got to get out of here. 
And so one of my best friends was really impacted by that. And she had such a hard time. And I just didn't really get it because they got funnier. They got more animated and funnier. And so I observed this and and it was really only later that I think I really understood what her home environment was really like. And it got pretty bad at a certain point. So that's my exposure to it. And my parents were, they were in uh, Kinets, which is like rotary. And the joke was keep it between the ditches after the parties that you'd go to. You're living in the country. And so you're less concerned about running into somebody. Your biggest concern is you're going to drive off into the ditch. So there's a, a few things are all negative, but alcohol to me always seemed like a fun thing. And I, like I say, started my career, if you will, at a kind of a later stage than some people did. What's the impact maybe of maturing? You know, how does alcohol show up in your life now? Yeah, it's a good question because only recently have I reevaluated what the role of alcohol is in my life. And as I was approaching 40, I felt like I was on, on this forced march to fulfill my grandfather's fate. Like it's every year I was drinking more and more. And, you know, to the point when I was, even last year, it was like multiple drinks every night of the week. And it was just like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and I found that I was like, my brain is just all over the place all the time. And what it, the alcohol did was it induced some myopia, right? It like just locked me in on a single thought as opposed to just being all over the place. And I craved that, you know, it's like it was anchoring for me. Yeah. And so I was introducing that more and more into my day, my daily rhythm, my activities. When I'm doing construction projects, I'd have a beer while I was doing it, multiple beers, um, social occasions, same thing. And it became about the alcohol. It became not, I guess what I mean by that is it stopped being about me going through my life and doing my activities it, and it became about the alcohol. And at that point, I feel fortunate to have a wife who's abstains intentionally. And it's just like, what are you doing? You need to look at yourself in the mirror here. And it was helpful to, you know, step back, look at that, remember like I keep bringing up my grandfather, but that is, it is like a tangible story that directly affects my, my, my life through the uh, anecdotes of my, my siblings and my, my parents and all that. And so, you know, that reevaluated role of what alcohol is that it's no longer the thing. It might show up when we're having a little celebration or something like that. And I have no problem just having a couple drinks, but it's no longer like the, the, the thing to get away from life. <laughs> or to induce that myopia or that focus. So it's keeping it in check. Yeah. Yeah. BJ, yeah. how does alcohol yeah. show up in your life now? And what has changed, if anything? Yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I think it's, it, my feeling is that it's still developing. I don't feel like it's come, the journey has come to an end. Meaning that I don't think this moment in time, I've certainly considered to stop drinking. I don't think I've had, from, from a normal societal point of view, I don't think I've had a drinking problem, but perhaps that's the problem. You know, when you go to, oh, for me, it wasn't high school, it was university, you know, you go to university and it was just like, like party time, you know, 
And mm. then afterwards, the freedom that came with earning a certain amount of money, having your own place, it did play a part. It wasn't the biggest part. I think since I've moved to Austria, the culture, I mean, there's a big drinking culture in the UK, but the culture in, in Austria is, I found it, it's more kind of accepted that you have a beer when it's not forced upon you, but it's just you have a beer when you meet friends or family, you have a beer during dinner time or uh, on the weekend at lunchtime. And also when you go out with friends, it's you can drink and it's almost like there's a kind of humor behind it. It's not until you're under the table, depends which crowd you're with, I suppose. My feeling right now is I don't like hangovers. I don't like the wasted time that goes behind suffering, having drinks, and the next day your head is, you know, don't quote me, I think it may happen now and again, but certainly less often. I think nowadays it's like, uh, I had a beer last week and it was um, probably didn't have one for quite some time. And uh, my wife and I shared a beer during dinner time <clears throat> while we we're having our dinner. And I noticed a tangible difference from the time we had the beer to about 30 to 40 minutes afterwards when it was time to put Zoe to bed, mm -hmm. my daughter. And I felt a kind of twinge of impatience i felt less patient than i did about 40 minutes before you know it was like there was a, a control element which i was calmer before and i've noticed that sometimes that that does happen it's it depends on who you're with and everything but i think if we're talking about a maturing point of view i'm more aware of the effect that alcohol has on me in any one particular situation. And I'll choose not to drink if it means that there's a chance that I may feel less calm. It's not that I feel angry or anything. It's just that, I don't know, there's a kind of physical effect where I feel more tired, especially if I drink something, it's normally beer, and it's, I feel more tired. And it's next minute, it's like the enjoyment of the, the previous moment seems to have slipped away. At least in a normal setting. If we're talking about a party or something, it could be different. You could argue it. But, I, you know, in a nutshell, I'm more aware of the potential consequences of even drinking a sip of beer or half a beer or something, you know. Yeah. I'll be three years sober, I guess. Um, can't remember the exact date. <laughs> Sometime in April here. I'm. Yeah, I found myself the last time I drank was I was at my brother's house and my sister, my brother doesn't drink and never has. And I'm not sure why I, we've never actually had that conversation, but I was standing at the fridge and I had been sneaking beers from the fridge and then replacing them with the, the warm beers from downstairs. And I stood there in, in a moment and just looked at my behavior and went, because I had, and this had been become a pattern for me of pre-drinking and making sure that I had several drinks in me before I went out 
to, you know, socialize that sort of thing. I'm a, I'm an introvert naturally. And I just got to the point where I can't function. I need that kind of bit of a barrier, a bit of a, a, you know, taking the edge off sort of thing. So I stood there realizing that I was sneaking alcohol and I was plowing this back so that I could deal with my family or deal with the social situation that I was in. And that I think for me was the moment where I went, this is beyond what is okay, that I'm not comfortable with it. And now three years on, it's not as though I still don't have those moments in those emotional moments. I just went through some some grief. I lost my dog, my companion. And I was watching True Story, which is Kevin Hart's new series. And there's a moment where Kevin Hart is out with his brother, Wesley Snipes, and his brother orders shots and says, oh, hey, you know, here, have one. And he's like, you know, I'm actually sober. I've been like six months sober. And he goes, ah, yeah, come on, come on. It'll just one. He tries to sip it and he, you see this moment of the whole thing crossing his mind is I can't do this. He is in a social situation and everybody else is, yeah, come on, what's the big deal? And he tries to sip it and they're like, what are you doing? This is a shot. And there's this whole moment of being in that, like, uh, I can't. And then he just, you know, he ends up getting plastered that night. And I still have those moments of, thinking like I'm a drinker and seeing alcohol and wanting it. And it's the association between I get to be out and fit in as opposed to standing out because I'm not partaking. And that is, in my mind, such a challenging thing for somebody who is in recovery of any kind. I didn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I kicked booze, read some read some books and did the work. But just being in those social situations, which are, you know, it's like the same thing for people who are smokers, that, that coffee, or if they have a drink, then they want that cigarette. There's all those associations. So anyway, it's been a real challenging kind of transition for me to be sober. And people are always like, Why, don't you want to drink? Don't you drink? And it's like, not anymore. <laughs> You know, and, and people are like, oh, there's a story there. And it's that's fine. I, I'm not afraid to tell that story. And it's not about forcing people to tell their stories. So the two of you both have kids. Alcohol is legal in our countries. It's readily available. It's socially acceptable. In Canada, we've now legalized marijuana. So that's a whole new thing for kids to be involved in or adults for that matter. But alcohol is still very much embraced in a social setting. How will you deal with that with your kids? I'm, I'm actually really pleased to see a change around here. So like Midwest America is like, it's a lot of soy and cornfields. And like when you go to, you know, when you go to college or university, it's, there's nothing to do because you are in the middle of i mean as far as you can see it's just corn and so it's, you can't just go out and you know go for a hike or whatever so drinking it just runs rampant in those areas and a lot of people yeah. in these areas 
don't get outside of that, right? Because it's in-state tuition and as opposed to going out of state, which is three times the cost. So, you know, I have a teenager, she'll be 18 next month or two months from now. And this is very much something that's on our radar because, you know, there's already been some exploration into smoking and drugs and all kinds of good stuff. We're trying to not have this uh, forbidden fruit type uh, mentality around it because I think it just kind of holds it up as this thing. And instead, just trying to ask probing questions and have them or have her, you know, really reflect on what is alcohol to her and how can you have, how can you have a relationship with alcohol if you're going to choose that in a way that, you know, minimizes risk and and doesn't um, lead to like life altering issues with, you know, safety or, or or whatever, because there's a lot that can go wrong, especially for an attractive 18 year old girl. Um, I think we're just trying to talk about it. And, you know, my other kids are younger. When we have alcohol in the house, if they've expressed an interest in trying it, you know, it's, you're welcome to to try some, but we do limit it and that sort of thing. So it's not like this forbidden fruit. It's really just an opportunity to talk about how to make healthy choices. PJ? Yeah, I think this uh, idea of making healthy choices is a good one. I don't know, you know, every day or every week my daughter's teaching me stuff about life and one of the biggest things is that you can't control everything you know i'm not generally a control freak but i'd like to think that i can i'm able to protect my daughter and to teach her things and the alcohol thing i've been keeping an eye on it i think in Austria, the conversations about alcohol, at least within the family setting, are a lot more common than they would be if we were in the UK. <laughs> I can certainly say that. And yeah. I think Zoe, Zoe's, yeah, definitely. And Zoe's definitely, you know, um, aware of different generations, granddad, grandma in Austria and, and there's us that the, the alcohol is about and people drink. And I find it a little bit uncomfortable, to be honest, when she would make a, a, a joke about a beer or something like this. I, I don't know, something in passing, which is completely uh, innocent, but makes me think, oh, Jesus, I don't know the potential consequences of that. And there I am as a parent, perhaps thinking too far ahead. I think there is the choice of saying, okay, zero alcohol in the house. It's not going to work here. But that is not us. I don't think that would um, work out well. So I I think what Ryan said in terms of making good, healthy choices, this idea of not having it being a forbidden fruit, I haven't got that far in development, I think, in that far. For me right now, it's just a general awareness of what's a kind of, you know, I'm not going to go up to her and say, oh, what do you think of alcohol? You know, it's not got to that yet, but I'm certainly keeping an eye on her and and I've made the decision to certainly drink less around her. You know, I think growing up, it was more, we would have a beer at dinner quite often, in fact. And I noticed Zoe's 
she commented once she's like dad where's your beer and i'm like whoa 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 whoa! i don't need to drink beer i don't need a beer i don't need a beer he was like yeah i don't need a beer you know and that kind of got to me i thought nah that's not on i'm not having that you know so right. now if i have a beer it's i don't know once a month or something i don't know and even then it's not binge binge standards but it's not five in a go or anything it's just i'll have one during dinner and okay whatever and if i have more beers it's not in the house it'd be when i go out with friends which again is not often to be honest during in the family work life circumstances right. so yeah it's quite a sensitive topic to be honest but I, I, the general thing is more awareness just to be generally aware especially if so is about in terms of my choices how she sees it and then growing up, let's see what happens. I mean, certainly I'm open to having conversations and I cannot escape and she cannot escape the fact that alcohol will be around as she grows up. So it's just about having those conversations. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And what I find interesting is uh, alcohol was such a big part of my life. I was in a business where it was part of my job was to taste the wines and this was a good way for me to cover the fact that I was drinking a lot was to, it's like, oh no, I need to, you know, I'm going to taste that one again. And it was fancy, right? It was because I was doing the wine tasting and, you know, becoming a connoisseur. <laughs> so that was my, that was my cover for being able to, to drink a little bit more was, yeah, do the wine tasting and, and buying wines and all this sort of thing. You know, only recently I've switched to drinking non-alcoholic beer or non-alcoholic. I, I can't do the wine, actually. I just can't. I've tried. Um, so, but de-alcoholized or non-alcoholic beers have actually gotten so much better and there's so much more variety. And of course, we're importing them and stuff. And I don't know whether you guys have, have tried any of them, but do you have any non-alcoholic beer? And it's sort of like, Really? And it's like, yeah, I think we have a couple of dusty cans at the back of the fridge. <laughs> so it's always this crapshoot of going into a bar or going into a restaurant and trying to order the, the, the non-alcoholic. Let me go and check. And you see them like getting down on their hands and knees and like crawling into the back and <laughs> they hold up the Heineken Zero or whatever. And it is getting better. I mean, it was just flat out rotten horse piss for the for my first few <laughs> attempts of trying it, you know. But but it's gotten a lot better. And sometimes it's like, yes, and we have a choice. And it's there's three different types or something, you know, versus <laughs> like I say, the dusty can at the back of the, the fridge. And so for people who want to reduce their intake or I'll have one beer and then I'll switch to the non-alcoholic option. It's uh, it's a little bit easier. I think Ryan, you've started to partake in these um, kinds of beverages as well. Yeah, absolutely. And some some of it's going to places where those things are. <laughs> those things, you know, like it. <laughs> yeah, those things. Yeah, and but the other day I heard something that was just a flip on you know the old take of like, well, I can't let you drink alone, and it was like, well, I can't let you not drink alone. <laughs> And it was just like, oh, oh man, the paradigm yeah, shifting. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just like, we can just be sober and have a good time together. And um, I don't know. I've been really pleased to see there's been more of that. And there's like certain sub-communities, you know, subcultural communities that are promoting sober social lifestyle. And my wife and I recently joined a, a CrossFit gym and there's a lot of sober activities. Right. And it's like there's volleyball leagues. And usually that's all centered around drinking. 
But these guys, they just go out there to have a good time, play some sports and, and be social without that. And so some of it's finding alternatives to being environments where you have to make a choice like that, a dusty can or, um, you know, temptation. <laughs> or, you, I mean, uh, but, obviously to a re- restaurant, you can't, but coming to a party and stuff, you can bring your own. And for some people trying to fit in. And initially, that's kind of how, how I felt is I wanted to be able to blend in. And so having that sort of what looks like beer in a glass it's cold. You avoid the questions around, aren't you drinking and why? And for me, again, I have no problem. It's, yep, don't drink. And if you want to stand here and have that conversation, that's great. Because for me, it's also what I find is when I have that conversation with people, quite often that curiosity is around their own. And I, I remember it when I was on the other side where it was, yeah, so talk to me about that. And there's a nervousness about, am I drinking too much or what is too much? And I did dry January and then had blackout February kind of thing. People do the, go to the the opposite extreme. So over in, in Austria here, there are loads of non-alcoholic, at least beers, like really a lot. It's um... so uh, just a stat in the U.S. anyway, it's forecasted to grow by 31% by 2024. Definitely around the world, there's a huge uptick in that. Sorry, I interrupted you, PJ. Yeah, no, I, I, I would definitely go along with that. I think over here, um, I remember trying this stuff a few years ago over here, a couple of years ago, and I thought, ooh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It was better than the stuff back in the UK, which is only one that you could get, which was terrible. This Klaus Thaler, whatever yeah. it is. Anyway, which they may have improved by now, I don't know. But now the stuff over here is, there's a couple of points in this. It's that the quality is very good. It's the breweries that are, the, that are producing this stuff are reputable people, reputable breweries that have been around for four or 500 years. And they're doing this and they're producing really good quality mm-hmm. stuff. And there's an acceptance. There are still jokes about, okay, that's non-alcoholic. No. However, it's not the same. I'm finding that. I remember a couple of months ago, I went out and we had a dinner and there were, I think, 12 of us. This was all according to COVID rules. It was in a restaurant and everything. And we had, it was a, a beer tasting thing. A friend of ours was doing the thing. And then the conversation came about about non-alcoholic beers. And funnily enough, there was no non-alcoholic beers in the beer tasting. I'll pick that up with uh, with my friend. And the joke came about, and there was, there was a guy in the corner. He immediately shut down the conversation with one comment. And he just said, don't laugh at non-alcoholic beers. But in a nice way, not in a threatening way. He just said, don't laugh at non-alcoholic beers. They're very good. And everyone just was silenced, you know? We were just like... Right. Okay, the, 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 the seriousness, the sincerity of it, we were like, okay, yeah, all right, we respect what you said, you know? And that was it. Whereas before, it would have been like, oh, come on. And, uh, you know, followed by an F word or something. But this was very... Me- the way he said it was very measured... And we totally understood him. 
we're like, yeah, you're right, actually. We're just pissing about. Right. But I think that's a kind of evolution. You know, it's not that everyone at the table totally agreed with him, but they respected what he said. That was the difference there. Either through previously, they may have tried something themselves, so they they appreciate his opinion, or the fact that (coughs) he just said what he needed to say, and everyone there was like, yeah, okay, fine. And it was all, which is even more powerful. Normally it's, come on, mate, you know, what are you talking, just as a kind of group dynamic bit of humor and stuff. But I found that quite, quite different compared to previous situations. Right. And the whole processing of <clears throat> how it's made is, has changed. You boil off the, the alcohol. Guess what? You also boil off the flavor and the subtleties and everything, right? So the whole process is changed. And I understand there's actually a, a winery, I think, in Spain somewhere that they're using this new sort of process. So I've yet to find a wine that I've found acceptable. And I know there's some non-alcoholic gins and these kinds of things. But And certainly if you talk to someone who's in recovery, who's been through AA that, so there's such a spectrum of people where this conversation around less alcohol, no alcohol, don't go in a bar, try and be social. It's a complex conversation to be had. And some people are, like I say, they're having their one beer and then they switch to non-alcoholic because they've got to drive home. They've got got to get up in the morning, whatever it is. The, the trick is that for people like me, where I got to was I couldn't turn it off. Like one, one drink was one bottle. There was no off switch. There was no governor, except for dry Januarys. For some reason, I could do dry January. And then it was like, like I say, just drunk February because it was like a diet where you're holding yourself back, you're holding yourself back. And then when you are allowed to have it again, then you go from zero to a thousand. But I think that I'm less self-conscious and it's actually a test in some ways. Do you have non-alcoholic beer? So I'm really hoping that the more people ask for it in bars and restaurants, that it will become more readily available. And and obviously more boutique kind of pubs that will be more inclined to offer and, and charge you for it you know, better sort of craft quality kind of stuff. I just, I want to give a shout out to my friend, Alistair, who will show up to social events with two liters of homemade kombucha and he calls it his moonshine (laughs) and he leaves and it's empty at the end of the party. And he just owns that, you know, it's not like the, it's like the non-alcoholic beverages are like the synthetic meat version, you know, like the vegetarian meat version of a hamburger, a sausage for him it's let's just let's not call it what it isn't it doesn't have to be a non-alcoholic version it could just be a different drink altogether 100%. that we're celebrating with absolutely and, and he does it with such flair i think it's worth worthy does, it, of does he come with is it in a jug then the whole deal like it's like over his shoulder in a jug <laughs> yeah he brings his own like his own stoneware like he makes this stuff in nice. his kitchen <laughs> nice. and do other people partake or is he's drinking the whole thing himself Oh, no, he brings it to share and he loves talking about it. And he'll bring a liter or two liters and it'll be gone by the time he leaves. Amazing. Um, and that's, yeah, 
it's it's good yeah, stuff. But it will also keep you awake. That's why I'm thinking like you're you're drinking all of that. It's like right now I'm awake until yeah. It's got a little bit of caffeine in it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just got to the point where it's like I can't drink any more cranberry and soda. And of course, I'll drink whatever is available. But ultimately, it's I want to be able to push the industry a little bit and push people to think about these alternatives, whether it's mocktails or it's kombucha or whatever. But going back to something you said earlier, and even in UVJ, is it when you and your buddy Ryan went out and your buddy was like, yeah, okay, I'll be non-alcoholic with you. I just find those conversations to be so much more naked in terms of not having that kind of buffer of the alcohol. And so initially it was like, wow, this is like really weird. Be, can I be funny? Can I be engaging without having a couple of pops before sitting down and meeting people for the first time? And it's still really, I'm like, okay, I'm going to leave the house and I'm going to see people. <laughs> I'm going to do it sober. <laughs> it is so much more naked and also less likely to end up being naked, <laughs> but ultimately a good skill to develop yeah. conversation without having to be uh, socially pliable. From- <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine growing up without alcohol, both as an influence and, you know, not in a negative way. Just imagine for a moment growing up as a kid, you don't see alcohol and you don't drink alcohol. The result would be this, that you communicate honestly, openly, what in this day and age may be classed as courageous, in fact, it would potentially be a normal state of mind, you know. And why the hell not? You think about the behaviours it's such a, a, an invested industry now, isn't it? Like if you think about alcohol and the bars and I don't know how many billions worth. It's in every single culture in the world, probably in some form. So it can't be ignored. Mm-hmm. So it has some sort of cultural significance in, in not all but many cultures. And it ultimately affects people's behavior, doesn't it? That, like you say, that barrier, you know, having a couple of bevies or something, taking the, uh, a bit of Dutch courage or whatever you want to call it. And on the one side, it's incredibly sad. And on the other side, especially after you've had a drink, it's incredibly fun. <laughs> and then the extreme of that is that, again, it's incredibly sad what the potential consequences could. So there's a middle way somewhere. <clears throat> mm. And uh, some of us find a middle way and some of us don't. And uh, yeah, I think this is a really important conversation to have. Thanks for it, Linda. You're welcome. That's a, a great way to wrap up your mention of courage. Yeah. Thank you both so much for doing this and for, for sharing. And I love you both very much. So good to spend time with Thanks. you. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. I mentioned in this episode that people are often curious about my sobriety. Why don't you drink? How did you quit? 
How do you know if you're drinking too much? I answer these questions, but the person asking already knows for themselves. Especially the question about how much is too much? In terms of how I quit, perhaps you won't be surprised that reading and listening to two women's stories were instrumental in helping me. The first was Anne Dowsett Johnson's best selling book, Drink The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. That book accompanied me on an overseas flight, and I hardly slept as I read it cover to cover. The second book I read and listened to the audio version about a year later. It was This Naked Mind Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Find Happiness and Change Your Life by Annie Grace. I've shared that book with many people. I followed Annie's 30-day challenge and just never looked back. I was ready to be done. And that was three years ago, tomorrow. I will share the details for both of their websites and podcasts in the show notes. I'm grateful for their courage to share their stories and their ongoing work to support men, and women who want to examine their relationship with alcohol. There are many, many others who are also offering their stories. Find what resonates with you. And no, I never went to AAA. It's no longer the only option, and it works really well for some people, no question. It's important to find professional support and community that works best for you. Most importantly, Conversations about mental health, stress, trauma, and even the proliferation of beverage options make it easier for people to make different choices, even occasionally. Thank you for listening. This episode was originally recorded on the amazing platform Fireside Chat and edited for rebroadcast on this podcast. I will be doing more shows like this in the future. To find other episodes of the arena or to contact me directly, please go to the website www.thearena-podcast.com. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in The Arena.